0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Ladaku community webinar, Rubber Bullets and Flack Jackets, Reporting Amid Unrest. I'm Jade Curian, co-founder and president of Latiku, which serves thousands of working journalists every day.
1: And I'm Paul Adrian, co-founder and CEO of Latiku. Thank you to everyone who's joined us today for this important conversation.
0: Yes, it is a really important conversation, um, considering what we've been seeing happening to journalists all across the U.S. and the world in the last year or so. Um, You and I have a vested interest in this, of course, having been journalists for so many years. When we saw this, it was just, it was unbearable. We felt like we had to do something.
1: Well, I think, you know, we were both out in it for a couple of decades, but for the most part, what we experienced in our working careers wasn't what we saw happen in the last 12 months. Although I do know that you did face police officers pointing guns at you before, right?
0: That's right. Uh, When I was covering Hurricane Katrina, that actually happened to myself and my photographer. So these are things that we are familiar with Um, and we, uh, produce this series called Latiku Community so we can give back to the people we serve and that's why we have these panelists here with us today. Let me introduce them. Lucy Westcott is the James W. Foley Emergencies Research Associate with the Committee to Protect Journalists. Prior to joining CPJ, Westcott was a staff writer for Newsweek where she covered gender and immigration. CPJ is an independent nonprofit organization that promotes press freedom worldwide welcome lucy
1: chris post is the chair of the national press photographers safety and security task force as well as a freelance photographer and journalist chris also spent 20 years as a first responder
0: sean mcnamara is the current news director at wdaf in kansas city missouri he has a background in television news and journalism hi sean
1: Now, before we start, we want to share some video with you to put this all into perspective. This past year has seen more violence and arrest of journalists in the United States than perhaps ever before. During the nationwide protests in May that were triggered by the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the CPJ and the US Press Freedom Tracker is verifying more than 980 reported incidents of press freedom violations related to those protests. We saw reporters tear gassed, bloodied, shot with non-lethal rounds with injuries to their eyes and limbs. We saw police appear to blatantly disregard press credentials. We also saw damage to cameras and to news units. We watched as journalists were arrested live on television, even though they were working members of the press in the process of doing their jobs. Now we did capture a few of these journalist accounts from video they posted uh, to Twitter and we can hear them now. We
0: identified ourselves as press
2: and they um, fired tear gas canisters on us at point blank range. I get hit in the leg. We asked them, I was saying, where do we go? Where do we go? They did not tell us where to go. They didn't direct
0: us, they just fired on us. I don't know, I'm, I'm bleeding from on the side of my eye. I'm
1: bleeding on my arm. Cops just shot my window out, my passenger side window out. The glass shattered as I tried to quickly turn and get out of their way. The glass clearly nailed me right here. Right here. My name is Ryan Faircloth. I'm a reporter with the Star Tribune.
0: fun stuff, right guys? Yeah. yeah I was just trying to get sure. out of the area. I was saying, you know, impress, and, and press, and press. Police deliberately took me uh, sprayed pepper pr- pepper spray on my face and then put me in a put me in zip. I asked why I was arrested and they said I think something about failing to disperse or something about that and I said, Well, I'm a journalist police inform me that I would have to report further away. That last clip was from Andrea Sahuri, who works for the Des Moines Register. Prosecutors in Des Moines had charged her with failing to disperse and interference with official acts. Both misdemeanors, each punishable by up to 30 days in jail. On Wednesday, a six-person jury found Sahuri not guilty of both charges.
1: So Lucy, I want to start with you. And Great. and first I just, you know, watching this video, it's always it just hits me in the gut. But I'm wondering from your perspective, you're so much closer to it. What goes to your mind when you see these uh, these videos and how does it sort of compare to what you're tracking at CPJ?
2: Yeah. Um, well first thank you so much for for having me today um and for letting me speak about this very important topic um my heart frankly is racing from from watching that video because i remember seeing and watching and reading the about these very incidents um as they were happening or when they were happening um I, i'd like to highlight there that you showed the video of i believe it was a vice crew um and i i think it was minneapolis but it was, it was a vice crew and the journalist was laying down on the ground there, face down in, in the, at the gas station. And then you see um, presumably a law enforcement officer then spraying him in the face. And I remember that case very well because I, I believe he, had, he was yelling, I'm press, I'm press, and it just didn't seem to matter. So in terms of the cases that we have been, um, we've been documenting with the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. So the US Press Freedom Tracker is a fantastic resource. I would encourage everyone to go and have a look at it. But yes, as you say, um, they are in the process of documenting and verifying more than 900 cases of press freedom violations. What does that mean? It means arrests, um, assaults by police and protesters, equipment damage, the use of less lethal weaponry, um, of which we saw a lot over the summer. Um, Just a kind of startling statistic for you, according to the US Press Freedom Tracker, and again CPJ works closely with them and I have done reporting for them on these incidents, um, there was a 1,200% increase in arrests of journalists in the US from 2019 to 2020. Um, I know that seems like a made up number, but it's not, It's, it's, it's very real. And in one week, so from the end of May, shortly after the protests started, to June the 4th, um, more reporters in the United States were arrested in the US than in the previous three years combined. Um, In addition to those arrests, um, I'll I'll highlight a couple of cases of assaults that we saw because they really were so prevalent. Um, We saw assault and um physical attacks by both police but also protesters and and people who were there um, as members of the public there was one staff photographer i spoke to in minneapolis who followed a group into an arby's restaurant that was being looted that was near a police precinct um, they the people who were uh, looting they saw him they started asking him why he was there why he was documenting a crime he replied, I'm here documenting history. This is my job. Um, they proceeded to then take his camera off of him and they threw it into a fire. Uh, luckily, uh, his that camera was replaced and this journalist had enough training and foresight to know that you know, he had a spare memory card that he had hidden away. He had another camera. So he, he knew what he was doing, but he was very experienced. Um, in terms of, of police and law enforcement assaults, uh, one case that stands out is a group um, of photographers in Detroit and they had finished their coverage of a protest. They were returning to their car. Um, they were they were encountered by a group of police who were in full riot gear. Um, they said, we'd like to go across to our car, we're pressed, here's our badge, here's our equipment. One police officer said, yes, off you go. The other police officer opened fire on them with rubber bullets. Um, one of those photographers was hit in the face, very close to her eye. So we did see a case of blinding in Minneapolis, the photojournalist Linda Tirado. Luckily, this other journalist, she, she was injured, but she was not blinded. But of course, none of this should have happened.
1: Lucy, maybe it's a question of the day, but a thousand percent increase from one year to the next. Mm-hmm. Certainly this, this is our experience, having worked in journalism, but not last year in journalism. protest every year. Every year, there's protests all over the country. What changed, do you think, last year that made it acceptable for police organizations to hurt journalists?
2: It's a great question, and it's one that I still don't think we really know the answer to um for uh, the protest it was a it was a nationwide explosion of them right that that i don't think many journalists across the united states were prepared for um i think that just the the heightened tension and just the amount of people protesting i'm sure also took police off guard when i spoke to police to get comment um, for the stories that I was writing, we often heard that they themselves were overwhelmed. They found it difficult to distinguish between protesters and police. None of this is a justification, but this, pro- this perhaps provides some explanation for why there were kind of just these mass arrests. Um, we also, you know, for journalists as well, a lot of them ended up, and this is not blaming journalists at all, this is just the way when you cover protests, they are highly unpredictable. You need to have a bit of training, a bit of knowledge about, you know, where you move and you don't always want to be right among the protesters because if there's a huge sweep of arrests of protesters, journalists were caught up in those as well. Um, And I just, to go back to this idea of press credentials, it was disturbing to see the nationwide Um, kind of ignoring of journalists as neutral observers of history and of documenting a story. In so many cases, so many cases, journalists identified themselves just like Andrea did and it just was not um, taken seriously.
1: Is there today a more expansive definition of what a journalist is?
0: Yes, because when you think about the story that Lucy just told us about the journalists who went into the Arby's and the police officers taking the camera and throwing it into the fire, who is a journalist? And they're struggling with this too, although I'm not saying any of those actions are correct. I'm saying that they're saying to us, uh, the American public, that we don't know that this is a journalist. So how do you know?
2: hmm another another fantastic question and and one that is definitely relevant to this conversation in the us um so that the arby's example that was he was a staff photographer but he very easily could have been a freelancer for an independent news outlet so cpj's definition of a journalist is is loose but it's really anyone who is what we call committing an act of journalism so if so someone is there um reporting the news or reporting on a story with the intent to publish it and to inform the public. So in terms of, you know, we have staffers and freelancers, right, but but bloggers, yes, if bloggers are there reporting the news with the intent to publish and inform, they would fall under that definition. We saw particularly in the Pacific Northwest last year, this almost cottage industry of live streamers. Um, like you know groups of people who are getting together to form collectives and to really go into the thick of a protest and show us what was going on um one example of that is a group called unicorn riot who described themselves they're independent they're non and they say they're decentralized and they did a ton of reporting across the us and a lot of a, a lot of their journalists um Uh, their cases are in the US press freedom tracker for being pushed by police um, or having other press freedom violations happen to them.
0: Let's bring in Sean. We're getting ready to show you some video from WDAF where he is news director. Um, And I understand Sean, that you guys developed some specific safety rules around covering the summer protests in order to keep your staff safe. Can you go into that a little bit for us?
3: Sure. it you know and it was really important we have a staff a lot of folks on our staff had never covered protests before uh had not dealt with with crowds like that with uh uh police uh not uh caring much that they were there or not there um you know and, and had dealt with different situations the the first part was um planning ahead of time um we did and it was a a next our uh, policy and it was really important. We did safety briefings before we sent crews to cover the protests. We had a mandatory safety briefing for everyone before they left the station uh, to go cover these stories, um, to go over the ground rules, to go over expectations. Um, you know, the uh, uh, it was already mentioned in this about the idea of being in the center of the protest, and we you know, made it very clear to our crews. The expectation was to be outside, on the periphery of the protest, rather than in the center of it. Uh, the challenge being that um, the, uh, if you're in the center of it, it's very easy to be caught up in it. And we felt we could be as effectively cover it from the periphery. And you're seeing the images here. A lot of this was shot from outside the center of the protest, and you can. I don't think you have any less of a sense of what was going on with, with these incidents. Um, but we kept our people from the center of it. Um, you know, another key piece was Um, finding a a position that had a high vantage point. Um, There was a church near the the, the plaza area of Kansas City that allowed us to use their balcony and to um, uh, be on top of that balcony uh, to overlook things. And it kept them down away from street level, kept a camera away from street level. Uh, And for most of the night, it was a safe place to be. Uh, Eventually, protesters threw bottles up onto that balcony and our crew had to evacuate. Um, And the the tear gas uh, gas, uh, Gas wafted into the balcony. Um, but we went over, you know, all sorts of things. Um, it's television. And it's going to be, it's very hard for people to think of this as it, the protests happened at nightfall most nights to not use lights um, because they attract attention, top lights. So we said, you know, as much as you want to use a top light, um, and actually, you're seeing now one of our reporters, For the first time in her life, experiencing tear gas, Uh, and, uh, um, you know, that was the balcony she was on, Um, but to not use top lights to attract attention. We took our mic flags off of our microphones to not attract attention. Um, Yeah, it is a a catch-22 because you want to be identifiable as um, media, and our folks were told to have their IDs with them, but to not be uh, flashing that information out there, to, to not attract attention that we were there to kind of be on the the side and be unassuming and out of the way rather than be the center of attention. And and if we went with lights and had station logos over over everything, it it, it would have brought more attention upon us uh, as part of the story rather than covering the story. Uh, You know, another big thing for our station, um, we fortunately, our cars are not marked. uh, So when our crews went to the area, they used unmarked vehicles um, the, uh, I'm going to, just for a second here, I'm going to share my screen. Um, let me call this up here uh, to give folks a, a sense of this. Um, one moment here. Uh, hopefully you can see that. That is uh, uh, one of our, another station in town, that is their car oh my on goodness. fire. Uh, and so you get a sense, and it was a marked vehicle. Uh, so that was uh, set by the protesters. So it gives you a, 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 oh, stop that um, so to give you a sense of of why it was important not to have marked cars. We didn't use live trucks. We used bonded cellular um, to make ourselves low profile and mobile. Um, and that was a really big thing. Our crews continued to move. Lucy mentioned this earlier the, the unpredictability of protests. When I said we had our people on the outside, well, then the protest moved and it went to a different place. And all of a sudden our crew who was on the outside note was now on the inside and uh with the the smaller bonded cellular unit, live units they were able to then again move to the periphery and get out of harm's way as best they could sometimes harm came to them um you know we had a, a police take down a, a suspect about three feet away from our one of our crews who was live uh, i happened while it was live and uh um you know they were able to stay calm and, and handle it but uh, the biggest thing was that preparation ahead of time knowing what they're getting into and telling everyone that at the end of the day, no story is worth the safety risk. You could, you need to make conscious decisions. I think a lot of folks they're gung ho. They want to cover that story. They want to be in the middle of it all. That's why they became journalists. And this was a time that um, cover the story, but also protect yourself so that you're there tomorrow to cover the story and the next day to cover the story. And um, you know that was uh, it was a balancing act to get the best visuals. Um, you know, and, and part of that, at the end of the night, things uh, generally don't get better as the night goes on. And there was a time during all of the protests, and we had about three or four nights of significant protests in Kansas City, where it was time for our crews to leave. Um, yeah. That the situation had gotten to a point where it was unpredictable. There was a concern about violence. And it, we, we had captured all of the images of, of what was going on, and it was time for them to pull out. Um, that the, the, the risk was just too high and the return was so low that there wasn't viewership at one or two in the morning for them to be out there, uh, risking their safety to shoot very similar video to what we had seen at nine and 10 o'clock. Um, and so we had them come back.
0: So you mentioned ID. Um, is that a press badge that they carry with them or is that just their ID?
3: Station ID. Station, Station. you know, branded ID. Um, and that was, it never came, became an issue um, with, with police. Uh, they had it with them though, in case it came up uh, because we had told them specifically not to have logos on anything. So even uh, we had a photographer who forgot and brought, wore a station logoed shirt, a golf shirt. Um, and when he came into the safety briefing, we said, Hey, you know, can you go home and change your shirt again to not attract that attention? um and um it was very different tv stations usually want their logo on everything <laughs> it's what we do <laughs> and it's and, this, changed. <laughs> and it was this was a case where it was it was much more to focus on the events we were covering than ourselves
0: one more quick follow up for you um what about covid certainly that made this situation even worse
3: it did and and that was one of the reasons for wanting to be on the periphery um you know all of our folks wore masks they did their best uh for social distancing. Um, Since the beginning of COVID, our crews, we we went out. and It's rather low tech, uh, but uh, very effective. We bought uh, extendable painting poles that you'd use to paint a higher place in your house um, that could be used to hold a microphone. So that gives them about seven, eight feet of distance from the person they're interviewing. Uh, So they all had those with them that night. There were times though, that they did come close to folks. Fortunately here, most of the protesters wore masks also. and while they may not have been distant, they did wear masks. Um, and, um, but yeah, we, we, we were very cognizant about the COVID protocols. And um, you probably saw that in some of the, the videos. Some of the folks who were closer to people, they were wearing the masks on TV. And, uh, you know, we told them, it's okay to wear your mask on TV during this. We'd, we'd much rather you protect yourself. Um, so yeah, it, it complicated things greatly.
0: I'm sure. And when you were talking about things getting considerably worse at night, I just remembered working night beat, and someone saying to me nothing good ever happens after midnight. <laughs> you don't want to be so true. out there.
3: <laughs> so true. Now we kept people at the station at the ready. If things had gotten to the point where it became there was uh, say shots fired or something happened we would have redeployed to the right. area where the protests were. They weren't far from the station. Um, you know maybe about a, a five minute drive away. Um but it, so we 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 kept them at the ready. But we it was time to leave that location. That that the danger, the risk to their safety was more than than we were willing to take. And, and the return was the video was the same. It wasn't going to be a lot different at that point. Um, you know, and, and even one of the nights the protest actually the, the I, I'm not sure where they were headed, but they decided to take a march, and so. Um, we were at the station watching the protest, that video you guys saw, and all of a sudden there were about a hundred police officers outside the station in riot gear because they were coming that direction. The, the, the march was coming that direction. Now it turned around and went back the other direction because who knows where these things are going. But it was a weird moment to look outside the station and see uh, riot police uh, uh, out in front of us.
1: Now, you know, Chris, I wanna bring this to you. and I, I wanna dig down a little bit on something Sean just said in regards to you know telling his photographers not to use that that light on the camera, right. which of course, is ubiquitous. Um, first, you know, touching on, on your background a little bit to set this up, uh, photographer, I understand WFMZ in Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, head of the safety and security committee at the National Press Photographers Association. So, trying to impact folks all across the country, and also your background pre-journalism, I understand, was as a, as a first responder yourself. Right.
4: So, yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I worked, you know, um, 20 years in emergency services, and, and I find myself in this really unique position where I rely back on the skills and training uh, that kept me safe for so long to now do my job as, as a journalist.
1: So, so, looking at again, what, what we heard from Sean in, in Kansas City, it occurs to me there's only so much you can do to hide your identity as a journalist if you're a photographer, right? If you're a television photographer, you have a big camera. If you're light or no light, you still have a big camera, maybe a tripod that slows you down. If you're a, uh, a digital you know, camera for a newspaper, you still have a big camera, maybe more than one slung around your neck. So it's clear what your role is. You're not going to move at great speed. What do you do? What do you do? What do you tell your photographers to protect themselves? I, I think you know it's really... Um
4: to try to take what we do every day and, you know, we become very used to using specific pieces of equipment. We become, um, you know, creatures of our habitat. Um, And now you're asking somebody to try to do something different. And it's not for everybody. Some folks have a very difficult time trying to be able to do that. Um, But I think From the beginning it's having the discussion about what it is that's going on what it is that we're doing and allowing people with the knowledge of what they do every day um, to ask them to then do their job in a situation that could be so much more different than the day-to-day operation Uh, and you know and sean and lucy really uh, you really hit on it where talking about communication and that's the key to so much of this, is the open communication from, from the news directors on down to the, to the newest person. Um, to, to have that open communication, to talk about what it is that we're going to do to identify early if there's any unmet needs, if we're missing equipment, if we don't have enough safety glasses or helmets or, or ballistic uh, vests or anything like that. Um, You know, we have those discussions now. We prepare for the storm on the fair weather days. And, you know, we we then get to the point where, you know, we start talking to our colleagues about what it is that we're asking them to do when there is civil unrest. This is what the expectations of you are. And allow them to, to come up with some of these plans on their own. They're smart, intelligent people. Give them some guidelines and allow them to come uh, to come to a conclusion how they can do their job, but to do it easier and safer. Again, with, with guidance and with some backgrounds. Uh, and, you know, and Sean and Lucy talked a, a lot about that. Um, my suggestions and what I give folks that, that, uh, that come to me and ask me questions, um, you know, try to, especially covering civil unrest, and, and, and the other panelists had touched on this, is try to to blend in and to try to make yourself as low profile as possible. Um, You know, when I when I go out, I have a I normally use a shoulder mounted, uh, you know, Panasonic uh, uh, P2 camera. Um, I very much will try to scale down to using something that's smaller um, to make myself not look like a journalist as much as possible. Um, I will, uh, depending on what the situation is, I'll dress, especially if I have to do something like high body armor. 'll uh, I'll wear body armor underneath something like an oversized hoodie and a baseball cap backwards. I'll look like I belong there so I could easily hide the camera in front of me and still kind of blend into the background.
1: Do you find yourself using cameras more like this one? Than sometimes traditional ones sometimes Yeah sometimes uh, you know and, and there's I don't know I think there's some some, some
4: photojournalism purists who will look at something like that, oh, I would never use an iPhone or I would never use something like a GoPro on a, on a gimbal. Um, but there's there's a, a, a number of different options for depending on what you're trying to do to be able to get that footage to do it safer. We're trying to work smarter, not harder. And, you know, and, and Sean touched on it, no top light. Why? You turn on the top light, you're gonna be an easy target for somebody to throw um, you know, to throw an object at. And, you know, I, I started, um, I worked freelance for a number of years, and I covered the um, the riots in Baltimore uh, after the death of Freddie Gray for Associated Press TV. Um, and you know, the interaction there with the Baltimore Police Department didn't have an understanding of what journalists do or what their rights were, um, and that was a situation where where. Um, journalists were put into a holding pen and it didn't work. So there's a lot of things that we learn over the years and, and collecting this information and best practices. um, That's what ultimately will keep journalists safe here in the U S the idea of journalism safety is kind of a new thing. Um, Other countries, other countries around the world, you know, folks that look, journalists used to get safety training. If you were going to go to a war zone, that was it. Yeah, You got high enough up in the ranks. You got a safety training course. You got sent to go in bed with the military. The reality is now domestic US news gathering operations, small towns to big towns, the dangers and the threats are there.
1: Is there a resource disparity? You mentioned small towns to big towns. Obviously, the big market stations and newspapers probably have more resources, both in terms of people and equipment, maybe strategy. You know, what do you tell folks working in the small markets um, or, at a, you know, we have bloggers out here who may be one, two person operations altogether. Right. Well,
4: I think, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, I look at the, re- the idea of a resource in a number of ways. I look at the financial resource. Can organizations outfit their new staff, the field new staff um, with appropriate personal protective equipment? A ballistic vest is going to cost you about 400, 500 dollars. Okay. And that's a lot. Um, it's a lot for folks that, that, you know, and for news organizations to invest that kind of amount, uh, into individuals. Um, so, so is the financial, is there money to be able to buy personal protective equipment? Is the money there to be able to send crews to some sort of safety training? Um, and then also the other resources, the understanding, the management aspects of this, somebody who understands, how to effectively manage crews in the field when they're dealing with a situation that is unlike any other news coverage they may have done. And there needs to be a fluid understanding as to how that works. And also somebody who really um, who, who really can, can help news crews understand um, how to be safe and how to give good um, suggestions and good information. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, um, it, this is something, it, it's new. It's new in the U.S. that, that folks have, have, you know, uh, little experience with. Um, I, I find myself in this goofy position where I, I, I'm i falling back onto training that I that I learned, you know, when I worked on the ambulance so many years ago. I bet. Uh, and, and here we are <laughs> now. It's a bizarre, it's Twilight Zone.
0: Yeah. Uh, of all the video that we saw this last year, perhaps none more disturbing than what happened at the US Capitol, Chris. And I know that you were there directly after the insurrection and that you also covered the inauguration. We do have a question from one of our viewers asking about specific black jackets, helmets or other safety equipment um, that you might recommend or classes that any of the panelists here might recommend.
4: Yeah, I um, so there, there, yes, I have, I have a lot of information and I can talk for hours and hours and hours on this. Um,
0: I we only have 30 I, minutes left. I know.
4: So I have a lot of information that I post on my webpage and I, and I kind of keep um, sort of an ongoing diary of things that come up. Journalistsafety.com, it's really easy to get to. Um, but yes, I do very specifically, not so much flak jackets, but things like eye protection um eye protection helmets um you know stuff like that a lot of what we saw over this summer there was a ton of eye injuries from uh, a variety of different items um and you know making sure that what news organizations we talked a few minutes ago about resources financial resources if news organizations are going to get ppe for um you know for the crews we need to make sure that it's a good safety gear so for example um you know if they're buying eye protection making sure that it is impact rated eye protection so it's actually going to provide a level of protection you can't just go to the uh, to the dollar store and get some plastic goggles it doesn't work that way um okay. it needs to be something that's appropriate and that, that it's rated for uh impact resistance yep. um you know flak jackets um there's a variety of different of different types of body armor um you know, and there's soft armor, there's hard armor. Uh, and, you know, making sure that, that what is acquired um, is sized appropriately for the person. So I can't take, I'm a big dude, I'm six foot five. Mm-hmm. I can't take a vest that fits me appropriately and hand it off to a colleague to let them wear it if they are five three. Yeah. It's not gonna work. Um, so making sure that what personal protective equipment is available, is appropriate for the person that's doing that. Um, And I also see the question about the classes. Yeah, there's a number of different classes. She specifically had asked about the HEFAT class, Hostile Environment First Aid Training. This was a course that really started, um, you know, with with, um, uh, folks that were going off to war zones. Um, I actually created a domestic version of the HEFAT course, which specifically looks at um, domestic news gathering and safety concerns around domestic news gathering. So it teaches folks how to put on, um, you know, put on their vest, how to properly put on a gas mask, um, how to, um, you know, verbally de-escalate situations, a variety of different things. Um, And all that, journalistsafety.com, it's all on there. Um, One of the big things I think is super, super important is... Um, and, and you can get this in, in your home community is learn some basic first aid. If you're going out and you're going to go out to the field, learn some basic first aid. Um, there's a program called Stop the Bleed, and it's designed to teach basic life-saving skills, how to use a tourniquet, how to pack a wound, how to stop bleeding with direct pressure. You can find those in, in, in cities around the U.S., um, and it teaches emergency life-saving skills. It's not about how to put on a Band-Aid or how to splint a sprained ankle. It's about how to save somebody's life, yeah. and it's applicable to journalists working in the field.
1: And so now I want to take it back to Sean. So we went to Sean, to, <laughs> to Chris, and Sean, I understand that you actually instituted a policy where you put a third person with your crews during the coverage of the Black Lives Matter protest, and I'm interested in that. You know, what was that person's role? Who were they? And I understand that you didn't send a security guard and I'm wondering why not?
3: Great questions. Kind of a few things and kind of, I'll start kind of with what Chris just said about protective gear. Um, It is a double-edged sword about protective gear because while you want to wear protective gear, you want to be as protected as you can. Uh, The danger sometimes though, can be by wearing protective gear, people feel emboldened to go in places that are more dangerous than they should. Um, you know, we, you know, at at a local station, we didn't have sort of the financial resources to do flak jackets. There was questions about that. Um, but in some ways I I, I'm glad we didn't go to that step because I think people would have felt more comfortable getting further into the protest and really whether or not you have that gear being in the center of the protest is more dangerous. And it was a way to be out the, the three people cruise. And it was after the night, um, that we showed the video of earlier, um, it was a lesson learned um, out of that we, you know, and we have some one person crews here on a normal daily basis. We have MMJs who work at the station. So initially we went with two people crews. What we learned though, um, and, and I think this is, is for everyone, the reporter is looking at the camera, the photographer is looking through the viewfinder of the camera at the reporter, who's looking out for that crew, who can tell them someone might be coming up on them or the situation may be changing. Um, and that third person was there specifically to be another set of eyes, um, to tell them when it's time to move on, to tell them that danger might be coming their way, that something might be happening that they weren't looking at. Um, we specifically didn't go with with security guards. One uh, you know, kind of more philosophical reason, one very practical reason, most of the folks who do security in Kansas City are off-duty police officers, and they were all on duty and were not available. Um, the, the more philosophical reason, though, is, again, it emboldens people to perhaps go where they shouldn't go, and uh, trained security guards, trained security officers, they're taught to use force in situations like that, and what the best thing you can do is not use force, but to use your feet, to walk away, to get away, to to move on, to, to see trouble coming at you, not to stand your ground and have trouble come to you, And and that is um, you know, and that served us was very well. Was the idea of uh, one of the things we told all of our crews at the front end in that safety briefing: you have the unilateral right to kill your live shot and move on. If you, if there is a safety risk, if it is the situation has gotten too difficult, you move. No one at the station can countermand that. Um, that is different than our normal procedures where you have to be cleared from a live shot and, and told it's okay to move on. Uh, in this situation, we said you have the unilateral the minute something the second something happens move go we'll figure it out and um there were a couple of different times that night where crews did have to do that um and and moved on um but it was the right thing and and adding that third person after that night helped a lot because they were able to see things around them um that you you can't otherwise see uh, or anticipate
0: so i want to move on to lucy now um Lucy, we have a couple of questions in the chat. Um, A Minneapolis resident is asking, in preparation for the Chauvin trial, the city of Minneapolis and law enforcement have prepared for peaceful demonstrations and the possibility of riots. They've made uh, accurate information a priority and have even contracted social media influencers who represent diverse communities. So the question is, can municipalities, including law enforcement, be more proactive with journalism, media outlets regarding appropriate protocols and safe access for reporters? Is this something that's happening? And before you answer, I want to say that Jody Mina, who is with an NBC affiliate on the West Coast, says, Right now that things are calm, media in cities need to start a relationship with law enforcement and discuss how law enforcement is going to deal with media in a civil disturbance. So what are your thoughts around that, like having a cooperative effort with police agencies?
2: Yes. Um, so I, I mean, that cannot be a bad thing. Um, the When journalists are there on the ground, you know, one of the kind of legal implications that we saw over the past year was was around these dispersal orders and curfews, right? So even though journalists are allowed to be there, so, so many arrests came from the perceived violation of those things. So if you know ahead of time, if the police is providing accurate, clear information, well ahead of time, it allows journalists to prepare and to prepare to leave. Um, and to get to where police say they can be. I think in Andrea's example, you know, she was saying, um, we asked, well, sorry, it wasn't Andrea, it was a different journalist in the video montage, but she was saying that we asked police where we should go and they wouldn't tell us, or we didn't hear them or they didn't know. So certainly better communication. We've, this has been many months now since these protests have happened, we have all learned and i would hope that the police know the value of informing journalists ahead of time um i don't know if this is something that is happening at the moment i think we will see with, with the trial coming up um, how that actually plays out in minneapolis but i mean from a safety perspective communication between newsrooms and police is, is certainly a good thing
0: also you know, the weight of all of these attacks, we've had so many of them now. And I think we all worry a little bit about that impact. Um, What do you think needs to happen at this point? We talked about some of these ideas, protecting yourself, Chris and Sean and yourself all talked about protecting yourself and having a set of rules, safety checks, training. Um, But what else needs to happen? Is it something that's, involved with community? We talked about reaching out to police, but what about community also?
2: Yes, um, I actually, I remembered a a quote from a photographer in Portland that I interviewed last year and it really, it it goes very well with everything Chris was talking about. And I think in terms of what needs to happen, thinking about it this way helps too. That this photographer said when he was covering these protests, it was civic combat, but without live fire. So in terms of what needs to happen, the newsrooms that haven't already um, gone through their preparation, Sean, I can't tell you how happy it makes me to hear everything you were talking about, having that third person, having those safety briefings, that is so fantastic. Um, It would be wonderful if if more newsrooms could do that, (laughs) basically, and really pay more attention to to safety. In, In terms of community, um, you know, we we now have a new administration in the White House, um, but unfortunately, five years of the press being told that they're fake news, that they're enemies of the people, that that sentiment and the feeling that that created among many people in the public, that doesn't just go away overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw with the with the Capitol insurrection on January the sixth. Um, It was really a culmination of of that sentiment, unfortunately. So I think better understanding among the general public about what journalists do, and they are not on one side or the other. They are there to neutrally observe and report um, and document, and perhaps some kind of general um, media uh, education or something, literacy, media literacy, would be helpful. I agree with that,
0: you know, also like in schools, that there should be some kind of literacy Absolutely. around journalism and what journalists do, especially because in the last five years what you said, um, journalists have been sort of described in a different way, so
2: I think that yeah. kids
0: need to know what journalists
2: Yes. Certainly, and I'll very quickly say that the media literacy, you know, that's perhaps that's a whole other conversation, but we have seen the damage that, you know, misinformation, disinformation, information warfare. This is something that we are increasingly have to think about. You know, the New York Times put out a statement yesterday saying that there was um, false information about COVID vaccines circulating on WhatsApp that said it was from the New York Times. And they had to say, no, that wasn't actually us. That was a piece of doctored um, information. And of course, that then, there is a journalist safety aspect to that because if somebody doesn't like that, you know, they disagree, they then go to the times, so. Wanna talk about legal rights for
0: journalists next?
1: Yeah, I'm curious. um, What are the legal rights that journalists have, you know, when they're in these situations?
2: Yes, um, so I would first of all like to shout out the fantastic organisation that every journalist in the US should be aware of. It's the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, otherwise known as RCFP. Um, we recommend that any journalist going out to cover an event like this, like uh, cover civil unrest or a protest, write their number on their arm in permanent market or pen, Um, They have a legal hotline. So if you are arrested, uh, you call the number and they will immediately connect you to someone. It's just a great resource. So uh, press credentials have been mentioned. Always have them on you, Um, depending on the situation. And we've also gone over this, whether or not you want to identify yourself as press. That's a conversation that you need to have with your editor or newsroom ahead of time. Um, I'll take this opportunity to recommend that everyone start thinking about doing risk assessments. Um, again, not something that was necessarily a common exercise in the United States, but a risk assessment is a form and it, it, it goes through, you know, what, is there a risk of arrest here? Um, are there any identifying factors about me that might put me at risk? What is my escape plan? Um, what is my emergency contact and my check-in procedure. And all of these legal rights will come into that. So at the Capitol, for example, identifying yourself as press was not a good idea, as we saw. Um, members of the media were targeted during that time. But in a protest situation, it depends. Um, but always having them on you, at least, so that you can show them when needed. Um, I've already spoken a bit about the you know, curfews, um, but but knowing that ahead of time, and knowing that you you know you, you might have to stop reporting and move somewhere else at eight o'clock. Um, also, knowing if there is is official you know some it depends on the city or the town that you're in, but some police departments will have a particular place for journalists to report in. Um, if if that's the case, you know consider just staying there. I know it it kind of goes against our many instincts of wanting to. Be all over the place, but um, from a legal perspective, it might just be safer, Um, obviously not trespassing on private property um, or crossing police lines at crime scenes and. We did have we did see many instances of um, you know equipment damage, but also equipment being seized. So if, if law enforcement um, requests your recordings or they request your equipment, you can refuse and you can put them in touch with your newsroom um, or someone else. And all of this, we, we do have a legal guide um, on CPJ's website that I think will be, will be shared after this. So everything that I'm saying is available there um, in much more detail.
1: Very good, thank you, Lucy. Bringing it You're back welcome. to you, Chris, I know you, know you do a lot of training for yes. photographers around the country. And so I'm curious, you know, if you could boil it down to, to one thing, you know, folks listening today can do to raise their safety when covering stories. And I do understand, um, because I've been told, that situational awareness is on your mind a lot.
4: Yeah, the concept of situational awareness is something that is it was it was so incredibly critical to to when I worked in public safety. Um, and it was a way of, of observing and thinking about the things that were going on around me and um, using that as a tool to help make smart decisions. Um, I've got a ton of videos that explain this in great detail and even test um, your observation and sort of how you're processing uh, what you're seeing. Uh, if you go to my webpage, there's a tab uh, that talks about the domestic hostile environment training. Under that, there's a link to videos. I've got about six or seven great videos on situational awareness. But it's, it's a way that you're able to look, see what's going on, observe what's happening around you, and then making the smart decisions. Um, uh, one way that I apply that situation and kind of a funny story, um, I was working um, an early morning um, a morning shift uh, with a reporter and we were covering, um, uh, we have a casino in, in town here where, where I live and we were um, covering something to do with this casino and we had to do a live shot, a series of live shots throughout the morning. We were set up across the street uh, at this park, it was a great spot, easy to get to, we could pull our vehicle there. Um, so we're going throughout the morning, doing our live shots. And I, and I noticed there was a gentleman that was sitting at a, at a table and, uh, he, this is a park, you know, where there should be kids. And this individual was there, looked a little out of place. Um, and he did not have any children with him, which was, it's not unusual, but it, it, it sort of caught my attention. And, uh, you know, I watched him as this was, this was going on and we're going, you know, every 20 or so minutes we're doing another live hit and, um, uh, I, I noticed some things that he had with his computer. Uh, one of those was an engineering ruler. And who brings an engineering ruler to a park? That was what, what caught my attention. So as, as this was all going on, I, I kind of was listening to what he was saying and he was being very discreet. Um, and I, I, I put two and two together and I figured out this was a federal agent who was doing surveillance on a, um, on a subject at the park. And uh, I kind of approached him you know, um, and I basically, you know, I said, hey, is, uh, do I need to worry about anything? And he's kind of looking at me. I'm like, I know what you're doing and I understand what's going on here. And he's like, he's like no, he's like, well, you're fine. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of went at it. And, and later I was able to um, speak to somebody that I am friends with in law enforcement and confirm that's indeed what was going on there. It was a federal agent doing surveillance on a suspect uh, that was at the park uh, with his children. And uh, you know, I, I picked up on this, and it wasn't until later we wrapped up all of our gear. Uh, I, I said to my reporter, you know, hey, did you notice that guy? He, yeah, he seemed a little out of place. Well, what? And uh, we had the discussion, and I told I told uh, my reporter what was what was observed and what turned out to be the situation. So, you know, that was just one case where situational awareness caught my attention to something that was out of place. But situational awareness and using it in news gathering, um, it kept me safe for years when I worked in public safety, but it's also a concept that can make can make you a better journalist, but it can also make you and, and help you do your job safer by being observant and figuring out what you're going to do with what you see and making a plan around that.
0: Sean, um, I know you have a young staff and some of these folks uh, probably at some point or another do have to work solo, even though you're trying to do the three person band right now. Um, What do you tell them to do if they end up in a situation where, you know, it's just them and and another group or someone else that presents a danger?
3: They, again, it still have the right to, to, you know, even to this day, and it continues. If you're solo, you see the situation shaping up that's not good, get out of there. Get in your car, drive away the um you know call the newsroom after you get a couple blocks away into a a safer location talk about what's going on work on a strategy of what you can do and what's safe to do um you know just to be clear we we did the three people cruise during you know kind of the the unrest We're, we're back to two people cruise and one people cruise you know for normal news coverage um and and look we had an incident uh one of the things i was dealing with before this call this week where uh, on the most innocuous story one could imagine about student nurses uh, training in the pandemic, a live shot outside a hospital in a safe neighborhood. Hold on a second.
0: I think we might have lost Sean.
3: Oh, yeah, I'm coming back, sorry. Okay. <laughs> it, my computer decided to do something very strange. Uh, so let me.
0: That was shaping up to be a really interesting story as well. So. a cliffhanger if you will yes
3: (laughs) uh so they were doing a live shot on the most innocuous of things and randomly a car pulled up on the street uh someone darted out of the car and in the space of about five or six seconds ran over to the crew ran in front of the camera yelled expletives ran and got back in the car and ran away the crew was very scared uh, they didn't know, they didn't see it again. The photographer is looking at the reporter, reporters looking at the camera lens. They just happened to catch out of the corner of their eye, this person running up on them. Um, and uh, they had a, a matter of about two or three seconds to to be able to try and get off camera. Um, and it was a very scary situation on a story no one ever expected. Yeah, You know, it, we can anticipate some of these incidents. That was a story where nothing about it set it up um, as a dangerous situation and they found themselves in it in a split second and then it was over. I mean, the whole incident lasted, I think, five seconds. And from that to go from safe to scared to does this person have a weapon to they're gone uh, was intense.
1: So we're reaching the end of the hour. I'm wondering uh, each of you, if you have closing thoughts, Uh, if we did a round robin real quick, 30 seconds each, what would that be? I
2: can start. I, I hope that if anything could come out of the very tumultuous year that that everyone has had um but but for journalists especially that the public can be more aware of what journalists have to face on a daily basis um and try and just have a better understanding of the risks that are involved um for newsrooms and for journalists we seem to be in a fair you know the simmering tension right now it's a quieter time so take this time to really learn about your safety to make it integral to your your daily work Um, it's not just something that again has to happen overnight and i would also there wasn't really time for it today but digital safety is massive as well and it comes into the physical aspect of it so um if anything just do a self-audit of yourself online see what's out there and um Thank you again for having me. Sure. Thank you.
3: Sean? Uh, you know, it, it's all about making smart choices, taking minimal risks. And, you know, I said it earlier, as I, I've said it to my staff a million times over, be there for the story tomorrow, that the risk you take today, don't take a risk that prevents you from being there for the next story. Because there will always be a next story and there is no story that putting your life at risk is, is worth it for um, because there'll always be a tomorrow. And you got to be there to cover it,
0: Chris.
4: I, I really I think the, the the two big takeaways are communication and education. Um, you know, uh, talking about this stuff now is so critical. Right now, con, you know, conditions are good. Um, you know, we're preparing now. We're communicating. We're talking about this kind of stuff. We're doing sessions like this. Um, you know, I, I know we, we talked a little bit before about the relationship of law enforcement. You know, what I did in my prior life, I have a lot of friends that are, that are in law enforcement. And when they go through an academy, you're lucky if they get one hour of training on how to deal with the media.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So now's the time, foster that communication, you know, uh, work with your local police departments, build a relationship with them, um, you know, work with community organizations, build that relationship and have that understanding now. Now is the time to meet those people, not when there is some sort of civil unrest situation. And the other part of this is education—is you know uh, uh, committing to sending your employees to some sort of training, um, whether it's you know stop the bleed or if it's something like a, a class like I do, um, you know get folks up to speed. Because as Lucy had mentioned, you know we dealt with with for for a few years of this you know fake news media and this distrust that was being built. Uh, you know if if it if it took five years for us to get to this point. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe exponentially twice or three times the amount to maybe get back to what we were like before. So it's not gonna go away, uh, but now is the time to, to, to prepare and to be ready and have those critical conversations and talk to your employees about what might be expected of them.
1: Thank you, Chris, Sean, Lucy for this helpful and really important conversation this morning. We will be posting links to resources as well as the recording of this session check out cpj.org going to the go to the staying safe section under get help or mppa.org under community health and safety we will also list the resources from today's webinar on our website
0: latiku.com the committee to protect journalists is a nonprofit organization that deserves your support their resources and work are helping journalists around the globe fight for safer conditions And we here at LATICU will be making a donation to this committee. And we hope that you will join us so that we can all support journalists who really keep us safe, as I said earlier, and keep our democracy safe.
1: The fourth estate. That's
0: right. Just a note about our next LATICU event. We'll see you in two weeks on March 25th for our next webinar. Flight Academy, Cloud Editing, Shooting for Efficiency at 1 p.m. Eastern. Dan Robbins, who was named NPPA Photographer of the Year for the Southeast region in 2000, 2000. will be leading the session on shooting and editing for efficiency. So that means shoot, knowing that you're going to edit with that very quickly. Dan is also a seven-time regional Emmy Award winner.
1: And just a phenomenal photographer, phenomenal editor. And a chief photographer for many years at WCNC. Charter. That's
0: right. You can register to t- attend that at our website, latitude.com. We also want to thank our incredible staff who helps to put this on these webinars Michelle Reinhardt, Ryan Emmons, and Al- Alex Almeida. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you to our team. And again, Big thanks to these panelists who had amazing advice um, and who are tuned in to what's happening out there right now. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye-bye.